Lord, nit kein mal as du gehst am letzten Weg. Wenn Himmel im Blauen er verstellen bläue Tag, weil kommen wird noch unser Eus gebänkte Schau. Und wird ab heute an unser Trotz mir sein und da. You're listening to No Borders Media. In this audio dispatch, we get insight and perspective into contemporary Jewish anti-fascism with two individuals involved with the recent We Will Outlive Them call to action. The calls for actions between November 8th to 11th coincided with the anniversary of Kristallnacht, the violent precursor to the horror of the Holocaust. The call for actions this year had particular resonance due to the Pittsburgh Synagogue Massacre in late October. For perspective on modern Jewish anti-fascism, No Borders Media spoke with Sharona and Moish of We Will Outlive Them. Moish is also a member of the Muslim-Jewish Anti-Fascist Front. Together, Sharona and Moish address the current epidemic proportions of worldwide anti-Semitism, solidarity between movements and peoples fighting oppression, Jewish histories of struggle and resistance, and militant tactics and strategies of anti-fascism. Let's go to the feature-length interview with members of We Will Outlive Them for a world without pogroms, for a future without fascism, right now. I'm speaking with Sharona and Moisha. They're both from the Outlive Them Network in the U.S. Moisha is also involved with the Muslim Jewish Anti-Fascist Front. Sharona and Moisha, welcome to No Borders Media. Thanks. You are both part of a network that launched a call-out for a, we will out, called We Will Outlive Them for a world without pogroms, uh, for a future without fascism. Can you tell our listeners more about where this call-out came from, what was the immediate motivation, and maybe some of the underlying motivations for anti-fascist Jews to get together and make this call-out for actions that took place uh, starting uh, late last week? So the Outlive Them uh, call to action came together or came to us um, in October before uh, the Pittsburgh pogrom and um, was basically uh, a network of, of comrades internationally who had been in communication with each other um, and saw the need for uh, a militant uh, Jewish anti-fascist presence in the streets. Um, the immediate motivation, I think, for a lot of people who came out over the weekend was, was Pittsburgh, but um, the underlying motivation uh, was, was the sense that, uh, you know, we needed uh, our own... Um, Basically, basically, our own uh, response to a collective response to to the the fascist threat and to the threat that uh, not only anti-Semitism poses to our specific communities, um, Jewish communities, but um, also the the threat that um, the the closely uh, related threat of, of Islamophobia and xenophobia, which is um, basically reaching uh, epidemic proportions and um, spilling into violence in our streets uh, around the country and around the world. Yeah, and uh, something that was a big part of the conversations that happened locally in New York was an awareness amongst um, anti-fascist Jews that an awareness of how Christian supremacy and Christian hegemony play um, like the kind of role that that plays in white supremacy, especially as it manifests in the United States and also globally. But, um, but as Jews um, 
of all different walks of life, the Jews who are descendants of victims or survivors of the Shoah, um, folks whose families fled with enough time to escape the Shoah. Um, I have, I feel like uh, there was an, there's like an acute understanding of the need to push back on Christian supremacy and Christian white supremacy and, um, and to, and, and a lot of people articulated that it, it felt like a natural time to begin organizing around a Jewish identity, even if we're involved in other organizing projects as well. Just ask a little bit more about the, the call out. Moisha, you mentioned that the, the, uh, it started coming together before the uh, Pittsburgh synagogue massacre, or what you called the uh, Pittsburgh pogrom. And, and you mentioned that anti-Semitism, in your words, are, are sort of at epidemic proportions. Could you talk more about that? Because I think for a lot of people seeing that call out, they might have thought, oh, Pittsburgh happened, and radical anti-fascist Jews are getting more organized. But it's pretty clear from your both of your responses that uh, people have been organizing before Pittsburgh. It's just Pittsburgh sort of made it a more of a clarion call. So talk, if, if either of you can talk more about breaking down what this epidemic of anti-Semitism is looking like right now, or anti-Semitism of epidemic proportions, and how what you call Shona Christian supremacy and Christian white supremacy plays into that. And I'm talking about the pre-Pittsburgh uh, moment. Give, give our listeners a sense of that, which seems to be the underlying motivation for these, uh, these actions coming together. Um, so there's been, uh, I think, an awareness among um, Jewish anti-fascists, and it's an awareness that's actually shared by many, um, many of our Muslim comrades in Muju Antifa that um, uh, anti-Semitism has been a rising threat since um, the Great Recession, the financial crisis, and um, has been used to divide uh, working class um, people against people. Um, who have common enemies uh, are told that uh, their enemies are in fact not not capitals, not the state, but but Jews or um, Central Americans or, or Muslims, right? And so um, this has been uh, a threat that we've faced um, for years now, and and the Muslim Jewish anti-fascist front um, kind of uh, was was an effort to uh, to bring together our communities in the face of this common threat. Um, that is Muslims and Jews, and was uh, one of the one of the elements of, of this larger coalition that's come together now since Pittsburgh. Um, in terms of where uh, the anti-Semitism is coming from, there's I think a, a misunderstanding of of, uh, of its origins and its social base. Um, it is it is uh, uh, it, it's uh, an art, it's a tool in in the hands of of um, ruling class people historically, uh, from you know, the czars to the, the pure to the, um, the uh, president of the United States. And, and it, is a, it is a top-down thing um, in the United States, at least, that has been incited and exploited um, and used to divide and, and attempt to, um, to place the blame for uh, everything from um, economic uh, conditions uh, to uh, political uh, activism and to, to try to delegitimize uh, the so-called resistance, to, to delegitimize uh, movements that are in resistance to the regime in the United States by linking them to some international conspiracy of uh, Jews who are somehow simultaneously communists and capitalists and running the show. Um, <laughs> and I think that, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of talk 
um, since Pittsburgh of, of, you know, and it, it was like people had just woken up one day and, and realized that anti-Semitism was still a thing. Um, but uh, as I was saying, I think we faced this common threat, uh, certainly uh, at a, a more fever pitch since the Trump campaign, but also going back 10 years now. Describe for our listeners the various actions and activities that took place um, uh, from November, basically from November 8th to November 12th, uh, all over uh, North America. Um, give our give our listeners a sense of the activities that people took place uh, that took place in response to the "We Will Outlive Them" call out that uh, you both and others were responsible for putting together. Um, yeah, it was pretty incredible. Uh, just to speak to the actions that went on in the United States, there were, or in North America, there were banner drops, um, speakouts in at two universities in Canada. Um, there were private local Shabbat dinners for in people's homes, coordinated by and held for anti-fascist comrades in people's towns. There were demonstrations. There were outlive them contingencies uh, that participated in other anti-fascist actions and demonstrations. Um, there were more banner drops and more banner drops and. Um, uh, somebody got up on stage at a punk concert and gave a spiel about Kristallnacht and anti-Semitism and like spoke to a large crowd about um, the international call to action. Am I missing anything? Yeah, there were actions um, targeting uh, at their at their homes in their neighborhoods um, uh, executives for companies that have been hosting uh, alt-right networks online. Uh, they're this was in response to a call to try to um, to take on the the institutions and uh, the corporations um, and the the private interests that are that are funding this stuff and making it possible for uh, for anti-Semites and and um, haters of all kinds to put out their ideology. Um, there was also there were street actions uh, I think Sean mentioned, including a very large one um, in New York City with hundreds of people, uh, certainly large by by the standards of uh, Jewish anti-fascism in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, which, you know, we're just rebuilding now. Uh, Chicago, um, Portland, Seattle, uh, the Bay, there was, there was also an occupation outside of an ICE office uh, with which we were in solidarity. So th- there were uh, a whole range of actions that were taken, including internationally in uh, places like Germany, where Kristallnacht actually happened 80 years ago. I'm curious about the, the the potential network that's coming together, or maybe a network that already exists. Uh, I have a I have an organizing background, so I'm a bit of a nerd for how these things come together. So, could you talk about that, and also whether uh, this call out this year was something that will that will be repeated in the future? That around the anniversary of of Kristallnacht, uh, there's a call for uh, for these kinds of actions. So, give our listeners both a sense of. Of, of the networks that, that, that already exist or that were relied on to bring these actions together? And, and will that continue in the future? I think for me, one of the most appealing things um, in responding to the international call was the autonomy that it provided for local actions. Um, even, up into, uh, even up until a couple of days before November 8th, which was the official kickoff of this weekend wave of action, people were just coming up with, you know, people were talking amongst themselves across the country um, man, I really want to organize something. Man, if it's only me and five other people, does that still count? Is it too late? Is, do I have enough time? And I think the general consensus was, um, yeah, anything. 
is better than nothing. Um, and it felt to me that organically a large part of, um, you know, you just asked us to list some of the actions that went on. And I, and as I was thinking, it seems to me that one of the best actions that took place was just Jewish anti-fascists congregating and calling in allies and comrades and also simultaneously extending themselves out in solidarity with local movements in their um, cities and areas. Um, that That is like a huge, to me, that still feels, I still feel a week later, like that was a huge part of the action, um, rebuilding those networks. Personally, I've never had a, um, specifically Jewish contingent like crew um that that would call itself anti-fascist um until recently in my life and and it's a hugely empowering thing also knowing what a uh, vibrant and strong history it's rooted in but um internationally you know in the development of the call to action and the in the development of the sentiment that kind of gave birth to this whole thing Similarly, uh, just a bunch of organizers who have networks and people who have traveled all over the world their whole lives and ended up in different places and seen a repetition of these um, awful conditions and systems that uh, give rise to anti-Semitism and fascism and just people deciding to call it like they see it and um, try something new um, by, by, situating, by situating this call out in our religious cultural or um, social heritage. I would just add, um, we may be uh, quote unquote ruthless cosmopolitans, um, but uh, we, I think the the people who have kind of pushed this uh, forward are, are people who are deeply rooted in, um, in movements and have been for some time. And um, this is many of our first time kind of organizing around um, something like collective self-defense but, um, you know, we've built those ties um, and I think we're very much inspired by some of the other uh, movements of the last 20 years and uh, kind of the responses to, to calls to action like this one uh, to uh, resist empire and, um, and uh, the other communities that are under attack provided a lot of um, kind of guidance and, and, and a model for us going uh, into this. And I do think this is something that will happen on an annual basis. Um, and we're definitely not planning to wait a year uh, until next November uh, to, to, for a next wave of action. Your call out, and for our listeners, they could read the call out at outlivethem.wordpress.com. Your call out references pogroms, um, the date that you chose, uh, the dates that you chose between November 8th to the 11th includes uh, November 9th, which this year was the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht, of course, was a precursor to the Holocaust, which you've referred to as the Shoah. The phrase, we will outlive them, has a very particular historical and potentially religious meaning. So, you know, pogroms, Kristallnacht, Shoah, we will outlive them. If you can, take the time to explain to our listeners, particularly, I guess, some non-Jewish listeners or younger listeners, because unfortunately... Uh, as the years go on, a lot of the reference points that many of us on the political left would take for granted can't be taken for granted anymore. So take the time to explain to our listeners not familiar with the history the importance of these references that you've made in your call-out and in this interview so far, pogroms, Kristallnacht, Shoah, 
um, the phrase, we will outlive them, and, and other references uh, like Kaddish uh, and other things that, that you felt were important to draw inspiration from and to draw strength from in, in, in putting together this call out and putting together these actions? Yeah, I'll start with something that I'm sure people have heard a lot of in the past three weeks, and it's that phrase, we will outlive them. And it, uh, that's the English translation of the Yiddish phrase, Mirvelm ze Iberleben. And there's a folk, you know, it's almost a folk tale, but it actually happens. It's not really a folk tale, but it's so good that it should be a folk tale, but it's even better because it actually happened. So the story goes that um, there was a, a town full of Jews and they were rounded up and brought into a field, um, told to sing and dance for the pleasure of the people who were going to take their lives just shortly thereafter. Um, and there was a popular song at the time and the song went, uh, we will sing and dance and rejoice and be together and be merry, essentially. And, um, the folks look at each other. Nobody wants to sing or dance. Um, they know what's coming. This is a horrible, uh, anguished, existential, terrible, godforsaken moment. Um, so they start going slowly and then somebody in the crowd changes the words to this song that is popular at the time. Um, the song goes, we will dance and be together and be merry. But uh, a Jew in the group start, who's singing changes the words in front of the guards preparing to execute them and starts singing, we will outlive them in Yiddish. And this, uh, and the people who were dancing for their lives just go bananas and are uh, actually singing and dancing and kind of raising their voices in song together, getting more and more wild, more and more um, empowered by one another's presence, um, not really knowing what's going to happen, whether, um, whether they'll survive or not, but knowing that speaking those words is so powerful. Um, uh, and it frightened the guards and it disoriented them. Um, yeah. So since, since the Pittsburgh massacre, that has been a, that's been a, a huge kind of hashtag or byline, um, around Jewish resistance to anti-Semitism. We will outlive them. Um, kind of a, a clarion call, um, that echoes through the history of, uh, genocide against Jews and against other communities. And um, just to uh, address uh, a couple of the other uh, words that were um, that were important uh, as historical reference, uh, because they refer to uh, real experiences in our people's history. Um, and uh, in, in the case of uh, the We Will Outlive Them, its origin is in Lublin, where I actually uh, personally, my family was wiped out, um, my grandfather's family. Um, but the historical reference uh, for uh, for Kristallnacht uh, was a point, probably one of the last points at which it would have been possible for um, people inside Germany uh, uh, to to basically um, put a put a stop to uh, to the mass violence, to the orgies of violence that were happening in the streets, and and it wasn't the Holocaust yet; it was a precursor uh, to the Holocaust, to the final solution. Um, and, and as, as we know, they did not, uh, but, but I think we have that, 
history of <clears throat> resistance, both among Jews and, and among non-Jews who also joined uh, the resistance against the Nazis. Uh, and that was a big, uh, I think, source of fount of inspiration for a lot of us around the world this past weekend. Um, the pogroms that, that we refer to uh, have been happening for centuries, uh, been directed against our people, but also we were seeing how a lot of that um, violence was also um, being directed today uh, and, and was looking a lot like the pogroms of the past um, in places like Chemnitz in Germany um, and in other parts of the world uh, that, that is being directed against Muslims and migrants and, and Roma and other folks, um, uh, other oppressed peoples. So, um, you know, there, there's a universal component to this. Uh, and there's, there's also uh, something very specific to, to our history, um, which just makes it, um, it, it makes it less abstract for us. Um, the Holocaust is not an abstraction for us. The possibility of another Holocaust happening to another people um, is not an abstraction. And I think, uh, you know, we've heard these empty slogans for, for years and years about never again. Um, but we have a sense that never again is now. And so we're, we're trying to bring back not just the, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, Jewish anti-fascist tradition, but, but also bring what we can to the larger anti-fascist movement um, by, by making this history real um, for people and also by um, trying to uh, do something new so that, um, you know, we don't have to say Kaddish. That is uh, the, the prayer for the dead. We don't have to say Kaddish for any more people. Mm-hmm. One more thing about Kristallnacht that is uh, really resonant with our current times and the violence that and the violence that we see from the vigilante violence, right wing violence that we see, is that it's uh, not condemned by the authorities. It's in fact bolstered and um, supported, and uh, in one way or another ordered top down from the authorities. There are records show that during Kristallnacht, the police were ordered to stand down. The police actually went into the homes of Jews. So, like, word, you know, not only in Crystal, not only during Kristallnacht, but during pogroms um, uh, all throughout that period, word would spread from town to town. Jews would try to protect one another and let let friends and family know that violence was coming. Um, and when that would happen, authorities would go into the homes of Jews and confiscate their weapons and sometimes arrest Jews for uh, like. For trumped up reason, for trumped up charges like um, organizing violence, because they were perhaps going to defend themselves, or because perhaps they had a weapon at all. But um, basically, that uh, the criminal element of this violence was always pinned on the wrong party, and um, and the police never served to protect the people who were being brutalized, and we see that still now. Earlier, Moshe, you referenced the Pittsburgh pogrom. Um, and also both of you have referred to, and the caller refers to the Shoah. I know these are really basic questions talking to, to Jewish folks, but I asked the question because our listeners uh, sort of need to know this stuff. So wh- why call what happened in Pittsburgh a pogrom? And explain the meaning of that word Shoah. Sure. So um, a pogrom is, is, is basically an organized um, assault on, uh, on a community of people um, with the sanction of the state and uh, with with uh, uh, various uh, forms of mass violence that are um, really undergirded by structural violence, by, by violence that's um, endemic in the system. And um, 
I, I think the reason why we are in, in some circles, uh, in anti-fascist circles and Jewish circles, talking about the return of the Grums is because a lot of what we're seeing uh, does look similar uh, in, in the sense that it's sanctioned by the state and uh, it's sanctioned by the authorities. Um, there was a show of, of condemnation uh, after Pittsburgh by, by you know, various uh, elites, but uh, for the most part, um, this, you know, this, this was a, uh, um, this was a, sorry, let me, let me start again. <clears throat> um, this wasn't just a, a lone wolf attack. Um, Bowers wasn't acting alone. He had, uh, networks of support and there were many people, um, who continue, uh, to, to, to work towards, uh, genocidal goals. Uh, and, and, you know, there was kind of a, uh, there's a, there's a piece of this that's also related to uh, what we've been seeing um, in other places where, you know, there are rows of white nationalists and, and Christian supremacists um, who've been given free reign in many parts of the United States uh, by the authorities, oftentimes in places and times that are not covered by, by the corporate media. Um, and m the target of, of those attacks, uh, the first target of those attacks is people of color in the United States. Um, and uh and and is, is migrants uh around the world um but that you know that that violence also um comes back around to us uh to, to jewish people uh to non-christian people and um you know, this is uh this is something that um i guess is, is continuous with what happened in charlottesville some of us survived um charlottesville in 2017 uh, who were involved in outlive them and and you know uh have been basically organizing to prevent um the the violence prevent programs from from being possible in the first place and the show um the show is is the uh the term in uh in hebrew and is used uh around the world by jews to refer to the um calamity that uh befell our peoples in um in europe and in uh north africa and central asia during the war uh conventionally known as the Holocaust, but it's not, the Holocaust doesn't convey, um, really the, the, uh, the meaning, uh, to, you know, that, that, that the Shoah does, uh, to us. To, um, and there's a, there's a specific, um, kind of a specific, uh, history, um, around the Holocaust being used and exploited by, uh, by elites for their own ends, whether they're in the United States or in the state of Israel, but the Shoah is, is our history. Um, and we, uh, we wanted to, to mobilize that history, uh, so that, uh, there are no more Shoahs that, uh, can happen to anyone. Well, I want to, I want to thank uh, both of you for breaking that down because it's basic stuff, but also important stuff to break down. And thanks for, for doing that. I'm just moving on, uh, but talking still about your call out, your call out, and your actions, and even this interview, you make a point of expressing solidarity with all peoples who are uh, the targets of and victims of fascists and the f racist far right, whether that's indigenous folks, uh, black folks, migrants, uh, Muslims, uh, queer and trans folks, women. Um, again, a really basic question, but why was that important to express uh, that solidarity with all the people targeted by fascists in, in your call-out, especially in the context of how um, Jews in particular have been targeted for vile anti-Semitism. It's almost uh, the, the roots of, of fascism. 
and in the aftermath of the of the Pittsburgh uh, synagogue shooting, why, why that why that emphasis on solidarity with with everyone who's a target? Uh, I think it's something that people know deep down inside, but um, don't often articulate. That should be articulated more. That if we want to get out of this mess, and I'm using that very broadly, if we want to get out of the mess of living in a, um, I think explicitly expressing solidarity with all these other communities, like you just mentioned, is extremely important um, for people who know implicitly or don't yet realize that they know that um, only by working together and only by um, joining our movements and our people and the power in our communities will we be able to um, build a world, uh, you know, guided and led by the people instead of by an elite few. And that's not going to happen in isolation. And the Jewish community can't turn inward and only seek comfort and protection um, for its own people the same way that queer communities and communities of color can't do that. Um, and that we're so much stronger together and time and time again, this is, it's, it's, made clear to us that that is also the most frightening thing to those who hold power. Um, our solidarity, our commitment to each other's freedom and safety and livelihood. Um, and we experienced that on the ground in New York during the week of action, the weekend of action. Um, the breadth of the coalition that came together, um, the, the, it was multiracial, intergenerational, interfaith, uh, a variety of tendencies across the political spectrum, all standing together against fascism and anti-Semitism. Um, it was an incredible feeling, incredibly empowering, I think, for everyone involved on, on all ends. And also just that uh, as Jewish anti-fascists, our identities are not one, dimen not one dimensional. We're not, you know, we're queer, we're people of color, we're people of different abilities. Um, and we organize in all of these, uh, in all of these parts of our lives, um, and they're inseparable. And we love and care for each other um, across identities and across state lines and across national borders. And yeah, yeah, I would, I would just add, you know, there's um, this uh, slogan from the labor movement that uh, some of your listeners uh, may have heard of: "An injury to one is an injury to all." Um, and you know, it's not just a slogan it's actually a reality uh, in that you know uh, an attack on one community will have repercussions for uh, for other communities and will um, will not just be limited to that community uh, you know it started with with Jews in 1933 and, and then embraced millions of other people um, in terms of fascist violence uh, and um, you know a, a response by one uh, community is not going to be sufficient um, to, to overcome the power of, of these institutions that perpetuate anti-Semitism, that perpetuate Islamophobia, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia. Um, and I think that there's a recognition in many of our uh, communities that uh, it's only through uh, joint um, action and, and, and joint struggle uh, that we have any chance of actually defending ourselves uh, collectively. Um, and our enemies um, certainly uh, don't uh, discriminate among among um, uh, white people, uh, white uh, his cis white, white uh, dudes um, 
are are working together to um, to use their resources and their power uh, to to repress um, us to oppress us. And I think you know there's a recognition that that can, that has to be answered by uh, a solidarity of of peoples, an alliance of peoples, um, and and not just based on you know uh, our particular ancestry or our particular cultural traditions, but based on um, a recognition that we have um, a common interest as well as a, a, um, the, the, the love and, and the um, care that we also want to show one another. I'm going to ask another question here, but I hate asking it. I just want to say that <laughs> because, but I feel like it needs to be addressed. And the, the racist far right and fascists uh, use all kinds of stereotypes or tropes to enable uh, and encourage the demonization of Jewish folks, going right back to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, all the stuff that Goebbels and the fascists did in, in Germany, and you know, to this day and age where the alt-right and the Daily Stormer and all these fuckers with their memes and whatever are just uh, encouraging vile anti-Semitism and normalizing it, and it gets more and more normalized as, uh, as, as people have no historical reference point for what fascism actually did in the past and can do in the future. So I'm wondering if you can address this enabling of anti-Semitism and the stereotypes that are created to basically demonize Jewish folks. And when I say that, it's a non-ideological thing. It's definitely something that's promoted amongst the far right and fascists, but it's something that infects all of society. Uh, it's, it's linked to uh, Christianity, I think, but um, I just want to get your replies to uh, fighting back and debunking uh, these anti-Semitic tropes used historically and used contemporarily to to dehumanize uh, Jewish folks? Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind for me is um, going back to what we were talking about before, a little bit about Christian supremacy and hegemony is uh, something that seem, that I think is just absorbed in uh, Western culture um, by way of that Christian supremacy. is The idea that uh, Judaism is just somehow an errant Christianity or is like, it's just like Christianity, but without Jesus. Um, it's just missing Jesus. It's missing God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And like, it just kind of makes it a second-class uh, faith background. Um, you also see that in language that we use, for example, calling the Torah the Old Testament, um, or calling the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament, and the New Testament with a hierarchical language already embedded in there. Um, and that's just so regular and it kind of informs the way people perceive Judaism, Jewish practice, people who are Jewish. Um, it's like a, it's a starting point that is already uh, puts an entire group of people at a disadvantage. That's one. Moish, did you want to add anything? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to jump in, uh, I think, you know, there's, uh, there's this, um, notion that, uh, or, or, you know, as we heard the, um, the white nationalists and neo-Nazis in Charlottesville chanting, Jews will not replace us. Um, there's a notion that is, um, endemic and, and that is, is, uh, reproduced, uh, in, in, um, media of all kinds, not just all right media that, um, uh, Jews not only run the world as, as a, some kind of globalist elite, um, some some secret cabal, but also um, are are involved in every major social movement, um, in in the sense that they're uh, 
they're behind the scenes um, and and sort of uh, mobilizing minorities against uh, Christian uh, ways of life or against capitalism or against um, uh, you know the things that uh, that elites actually hold dear. Um, and there is there is a, a legitimate anger among many people around the world against uh, capital and against uh, what uh, you know people have been calling the United States the one percent. Uh, but I think they get there's there's uh, an, a very clear interest that the actual one percent has in not being identified as um, as the one percent, not being identified as as um, as what they are. Um, and there's an effort um, on the part of elites around the world, I think, to um, to use these tropes and to use these images and to use these narratives um, to cover their asses and and um, whatever they do that. Um, that involves, let's say, uh, the exploitation of working people, or that involves the, um, you know, the concentration of financial capital in fewer and fewer hands. Um, the Jews are kind of like a uh, a reserve um, where that can be called upon uh, in people's imagination and, and people's ideology, um, and that can be um, kind of like. Uh, Basically, whenever whenever uh, there is a, a crisis uh, in the world, as, as there has been, I think, pretty uh, nonstop for the last 10 years, uh, they're, they're the Jews who are, are behind the scenes um, and are responsible. Um, and these tropes have made a comeback, uh, not because they, they um, are, you know, specific to like Trumpism or specific to one political party or political tendency. But I think we do recognize that... Um, you know the 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 far right. This is this is kind of central uh, to the far right's vision of the world. Um, it's one in which Jews are trying to replace them. Um, and uh, you know we we were singing in the streets, Jews will outlive you um, uh, last weekend. Um, in the sense of, of we we have survived this long, not um, you know because we're uh, better than than anybody else, but because of that tradition of struggle and that tradition of of fighting back. Uh, just to uh, uh, address a bit more this idea of uh, Christian supremacy and Christian white supremacy that uh, Sharona has mentioned a couple of times, um, there, there is this, uh, I guess, superficial perception that Christians love Jews insofar as certain kinds of Christians love Israel. <laughs> so can you address that and the sort of uh, um, problem that that is where, you know, large swaths of uh, Christian evangelicals uh, uncritically uh, promote Israel, but at the same time, you know, with sort of a, a, an ulterior motive and in, in, in a way reinforcing Christian supremacy. Can you debunk for us this, uh, this uh, alleged or uh, ostensible support by Christian evangelicals for, for Jews through, through their support for Israel? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try to respond um, just briefly to the best of my ability. So uh, the Christian uh, support for the state of Israel is founded in uh in a christian theology that um posits that uh jews have to be um in control of jerusalem and of uh, the so-called promised land so that um jesus can return and uh we can all uh embrace him uh and 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 be saved um so it it's basically or, or the ones who don't uh who refuse jesus uh will be um will be destroyed. So I, you know, it's basically, um, 
I think, a project of the Christian right for some time now to support the state of Israel, um, that is the state, not, not people, um, and to do so uh, in a way that reinforces not just um, their theology, but also uh, Western imperialism and, and power in the region. Um, and I think that there's, there's a, a confusion that a lot of people have uh, between uh, Israel and the Jewish people, the state of Israel and the Jewish people. Um, and that confusion is, is um, you know, has been, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, sorry, let me, let me just start again. I don't want to ramble. Um, we say this as, as succinctly as possible. Uh, the Christian support for the state of Israel is an anti-Semitic politics. Um, it's, it's based on the idea that, um, that we all uh, need to be in Israel and uh, in order for uh, Jesus to return and that we, we all uh, need to be in an ethno state, um, each, each uh, people having its own uh, uh, state. And I think you see Nazis uh, espousing uh, Zionism as an answer to the Jewish question or the Jewish problem, as they call it. They want us all um, somewhere else. Uh, and um, I think, you know, if, if they can't get that, then, then they want us dead. So it's, it's very much, um, I think, an anti-Semitic politics that, uh, that it roots Christian Zionism um, in, in the anti-Semitic tradition and, and is, is the basis for a lot of the connections between the far right in Israel and around the world. You, you mentioned the term uh, ethnostate, and that's... Uh... Uh, useful segue, I think, into my next question, which is often when when these stereotypes are aimed at whatever community, some of them are ones that we don't mind embracing. Um, so one of those one of those anti-Semitic tropes or or stereotypes is this idea of the rootless cosmopolitan, the um, you know the person who doesn't have a home and roams the world and sets up shop wherever they can. This this uh, this trope sort of has its origins in Stalinism, but you know it's been used to demonize Jews, but I'm not sure what's so bad about being cosmopolitan. And in your call-out, uh, you have a, a graphic image with the, with the phrase, uh, wherever we live, that's our homeland. And you know, that reminds me of, of so much in literature and in poetry, um, uh, lots of different things that sort of echo that same sentiment. Um, there's a Montreal-based uh, Lebanese writer, Abla Farood, who wrote, um, my home is wherever my kids are happy. This idea of being a migrant and roaming is something that I think is universal to all of us. We are not simply linked to one place, we you know we, we make ourselves. So uh, you know, I mean, speak to this idea of somehow being a cosmopolitan, of being a negative thing, especially as it relates to Jewish folks. The phrase "wherever we live, that's our homeland" comes from an election poster that was produced by the Jewish Labor Bund, which was a Jewish po- workers' political party founded in 1897 um, in Eastern Europe that uh, was one of the, was a really strong force of resistance to antisemitism and the rise of fascism earlier in the 20th century. Um, and I just, I mean, th- this phrase has just been um, picked up by so many Jewish left communities uh, recently. And what it says to me is that where there is struggle and where there is violence and where there is and a threat of anti-Semitism, I will stay and I will fight it. I will not run away to Israel. Israel's not my homeland. I was born and raised right here where I was born and raised. My community is here. 
my Jewish people are here. My friends and family and lovers and non-Jewish comrades are here. This is where I belong and this is where my site is. Um, and, um, and, you know, the term homeland being like, I, I prefer, you know, it's just where your home is and where, where your roots are, um, whether we're rootless or not. Um, it's also important to remember that Jews as a people uh, settle and are uh, migratory people and have been forced to be a migratory people and settle and make communities where, um, where the elite and where empires see fit to have them. They've been kicked out of nations and states um, and empires all throughout history, and um, it's a diasporic tradition. Moish, do you want to add anything? Um, sure. Just quickly, um, I think the notion that um, we are in international solidarity is potentially a dangerous one uh, for, for capital, for states, uh, for empires, and um, there's a reason why diasporic peoples uh, such as ours have been targeted over and over again by people in power um, because international solidarity is dangerous and um, rootless, rootless cosmopolitanism or whatever you want to call it, um, I think presents a, a threat uh, to uh, those who, who, uh, whose power is rooted in, in settler colonialism or in imperialism in general. Um, and, and the irony is that capital, capital doesn't know borders uh, and, and uh, imperial states don't uh, seem to respect borders, uh, uh, but they, uh, they only enforce them for people, for labor, for, for, um, for working people and for, uh, for diasporas of, of people who are um, refugees or um, economic or climate or political refugees, or religious refugees. And I think there's been a, a, a wave of nationalism um, you know, since uh, over the last 10 years that um, is, is uh, bringing back a lot of these, uh, a lot of these tropes. And, and we, we actually embrace our internationalism. Our internationalism is at the core of our political life. Um, and so I think that is, that is, in fact, a threat when it's translated concretely into international solidarity. Both of you, Sharona and Moish, if you can share with our listeners, and you've been doing it in some of your responses already, but maybe we can focus in on important and inspiring Jewish anti-fascist reference points, and not just anti-fascist, but, you know, reference points for social struggle that are important to keep in mind in this day and age. I know, Sharona, you just referenced the Bund. In terms of how we can resist fascism, some of the lessons from the past, successful or not, and not just resist fascism, but create a liberatory world. There is, uh, obviously, there is uh, some that would argue that the ultimate... Uh, resistance to that fascism is creating the state of Israel, but clearly both of you are, are referencing other things historically and contemporarily. So, so share with our listeners some of those reference points, whether it dates back to the pre-World War II era, the, um, the, the, the Yiddish-speaking communities worldwide, but in, right here in North America as well, there were strong Yiddish communities in, in New York and Montreal, etc. Uh, talk about some of those uh, reference points that inspire, inspire you for your resistance today. Uh, I would encourage anybody who is not familiar with the history to take a long weekend and use all the resources of the internet right at your fingertips and just read some of the stories of Jewish partisan fighters and resistance fighters during the Nazi regime. Um, these are, you know, and non-Jewish partisans as well. 
Um, these are people who organized themselves, armed and defended themselves, and did everything they possibly could to um, to stop Nazis in their tracks. Literally, whether it was from blowing up railroad tracks to um, smuggling literature to um, going into the ghettos and warning the people in the ghettos about the liquidation camps and the concentration camps, warning people what was going to happen, whether successfully or unsuccessfully. Um, women who used their looks and their sex appeal to get close to Nazi officers, gather intelligence, or take their lives. Um, people who set up underground synagogues, educational centers, childcare centers, hospitals, ways to take care of one another during the oppressive Nazi regime um, that held that held true and held fast to Jewish tradition and cultural experience. Uh, incredibly inspiring to me uh, to realize that the scope of resistance, um, Jewish resistance to fascism, was literal, practical, emotional, spiritual, psychological. Um, it was everything. And it yeah, it's really outstanding. And um, just to add to that, um, I, I, I do think it's important to uh, to be clear that um, the origins of the resistance movements uh, in Nazi-occupied Europe and North Africa were uh, were actually in immense movements that had been building um, worker power, had been building popular power in. Uh, all across uh, the the region for for years and years, and trying to create liberatory spaces where people could practice not just uh, the Jewish faith, but also um, uh, the 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 kind of everyday practice of um, you know trying to to get beyond capitalism and to live um, in a way that is in accordance with uh, what what some people see as in accordance with the Torah, and other people just see as as with um, the basic ethical and, and moral commitments of Judaism or of Jewishness. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're recovering a lot of that tradition today, not just of what people did in the most dire of circumstances, but, you know, what they did on Shabbat on or Shabbos on a Friday night or what they did, um, you know, to, to, to try to create a, a parallel education system or a parallel healthcare system um, for, for working people, for working Jews. And there's, um, there's a whole, history that has been intentionally erased um, by states all over the world, especially from um, uh, the Soviet Union under Stalin to the state of Israel today, um, and of course uh, by, by the fascist regimes of the 20th century, um, to try to erase this history because it is, it is a model, it's an alternative model to, uh, that, that you know, poses the possibility of, a, of another world. And um, that uh, I think we have drawn on on these traditions uh, from uh, from the partisans and from the resistance, but also from the the years and years of of building um, uh, a Jewish left and a Jewish revolutionary tradition that preceded that. Sharona and Moish, um, there are a lot of debates happening right now about how to best and effectively resist the far right and fascism. I guess. One starting point is you have to acknowledge that it exists. But for those that acknowledge it exists, uh, many sort of urge, uh, you know, an investment in the Democratic Party, 
Um, people talk about the tradition of, of Jewish liberals in the past and black civil rights activists working together and rebuilding those kinds of coalitions. There's an emphasis on civility and, you know, sort of uh, not liking the fact that people like Trump and others on the far right are uncivil or incivil. Um, I can kind of anticipate your reply just by the fact of uh, you've already referenced militant anti-fascism and talked about autonomous community self-defense and and some of your historical reference points. But uh, as members, you know, you're individual members of the network, so you can't speak on behalf of everyone. But as members of the We Will Outlive Them network, what are your views uh, of these debates about how to best resist fascist, the creeping fascism that we see and full-on fascism that we're now facing, um, maybe to limit it to here, here, in, here in North America? I guess one most recent experience that I can speak to in response to this question was just a couple of Saturdays ago where I woke up and read the news about what had happened in Pittsburgh. And of course, living in a large city, there were lots of things immediately sprung into action by Jewish institutions, um, vigils, memorials, uh, public morning ritual kind of service. Um, the one that I went to had maybe between like 600 to 800 to 1,000 people. Um, some people say 1,000. I'm not sure. We're spilling out, spilling out onto the streets, um, just crowds and crowds of people uh, doing a small prayer service, speak out led by local organizations, anti-racist organizations, anti-violence organizations, Jewish left progressive organizations. Um, and I would say, I mean, you can't tell by looking, but the crowd is primarily Jewish um, with a lot of allies joining their friends as well. And, uh, and I remember hearing as they wrapped up a speaker saying, and in 10 days, we're going to have the chance to really do something about this. And I was thinking, oh man, well, it's not in 10 days, but really soon is Kristallnacht. Maybe they're going to say it's Kristallnacht and we can like, like lift up our people's history and like, coalesce around community directed action and then they said we're gonna vote and i looked at the people i went to the act to the vigil with and we just like had our mouths agape um not because voting is completely non-important um voting is really important and the results of voting can reduce harm to a lot of communities um, and have material impact on people's lives which is huge but um in the face of a massacre um, and like Moisha said earlier, not a lone wolf attack. These people, these right-wing vigilantes, these anti-Semites and racists and bigots are organized. And I think that, um, so just to backtrack before I get ahead of myself, there, you know, that happened on Saturday um, and some organizers on the ground in New York were already talking about responding to this international call and what will we do? Then when we put out a smaller call in our communities, for a New York assembly around days of action. The first like half an hour of our meeting was, you know, maybe I'm exaggerating that half an hour, but the first portion of our meeting was people uh, being able to air their grievances about what they saw as an inappropriate response um, or a response that just didn't, didn't, a response from the Jewish institutional left that did not touch on the anger that people were feeling. Sadness, yes. Mourning and ritual, yes. We have these things in place for thousands of years and they and we do them collectively and it heals some part of us and it feels really good to be Jewish in public um, at a time when it's something you can be so horrendously threatened for. But 
a, a direct response to those who aid and abet fascists must be on the table. Um, right. So election day is coming on and, um, I guess some fascists got unseated from power, but fascism is still here. And there are still uh, white nationalists organizing on the internet. Um, I also think to speak to another part of your question about uh, militancy and violence and civility, uh, so much of the planning and, um, and rhetoric, uh, the hateful speech, the horrendous, like, violent planning that goes on on the far right um, and the alt-right and the right light, whatever. So much of that goes on hidden from the public eye. So I don't think that the average person has really any idea um, just how vile it is and really just how genocidal it is. Um, and that these people are, they want to amass power. They're not joking. They have plans that they want to execute. They're working together. They have national networks, they're organized, they're armed, they're learning to walk in lockstep, they have uniforms, they have, you know, they're not, they're not concerned with stability. And they don't have small goals, they have enormous goals. And they also have the backing of state power. And um, for folks to think, you know, personally, it's my personal opinion that for people to think that sitting at home, you know, or like signing a petition, and then calling your representative and then doing nothing beyond that. To me, that's not going to get us where we need to go. And also, we don't just need to go back to 2012 or 2008. Um, I think people who are committed to building a world without fascism also understand that that world is going to look radically different from from any America that most of us know. Yeah, I would just, just to add, um, I think... There, there are kind of two uh, distinct pieces of, of your uh, what kind of the, the what you were referring to in your question. Um, one is the history of Jewish solidarity with the Black freedom struggle, which um, has never been fully contained to the Democratic Party or to liberal politics. And actually, there's a proud um, history of, of common struggle that goes back over 100 years that has nothing to do. Um, with liberalism and, and everything to do with the revolutionary tradition. Um, but I think the, the incorporation of um, uh, minority communities in the United States, um, racial, religious, uh, sexual minorities, into gender minorities, into the Democratic Party and into the party system um, has been one of, the, one of the things that has enabled fascism um, in, in part to, to, to progress to the point that it has because we have power uh, in other, uh, in, in, in another sense, right? When we when we actually mobilize our uh, our power as as people in solidarity with each other, on our terms. Um, but we've been we've been doing this in on the terms of um, of a political uh, uh, system and an economic system that um, is is itself uh, premised on genocide, is itself premised on um, on. Uh, on violence around the world and here in the United States. And I think there's a growing recognition um, that, uh, you know, that it's, it's certainly not going to stop fascism, um, that, that the Democrats and um, the kind of uh, uh, civility that they're calling for have never stopped fascism uh, and, and have in fact been, you know, uh, a base 
of, of collaborators uh, for fascists in the past. And I think we're trying not to repeat those mistakes of the past in which uh, people put their faith in a, a political system, an economic system that, um, uh, you know, makes make fascism possible and, and perhaps necessary at some points for elites. Um, and those elites are not going to turn around and, and give any of their power back once they have it. Um, so, you know, it, maybe it would have been possible to stop Trump in 2016. It didn't happen. Uh, Trumpism will, will endure beyond Trump. Fascism will endure beyond uh, Republican control of um, the federal government. And really the only way to stop it is the only thing that's ever stopped it, which is popular uh, struggle. Sharona and Moish, members of the We Will Outlive Them Network, thank you for taking the time to speak with us on No Borders Media. Thank you so much. And if folks want to uh, learn more, they should check out outlivethem.wordpress.com. Check out the Twitter. It's at outlivethem. Check out the hashtag for the public-facing events that people were sharing on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. The hashtag is also just hashtag outlivethem. Um, and also... If you and your anti-fascist crew want to plug into this network of Jews and allies, um, the email address is we will outlive them at protonmail.com. You were just listening to a No Borders Media interview with two members of the We Will Outlive the Network for a world without pogroms, for a future without fascism, sharing their perspectives on contemporary Jewish anti-fascism. No Borders Media is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities and resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. You can also access our podcasts at Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, and Pocket Casts. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months. To end the show, we hear the Partisan song, composed and sung in Yiddish by Emma Schaefer. Der Schwarzer Nächten wird